We're back in Luke. We're back in Luke. So uh, if you want to open up your Bibles, Luke chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and these lovely gentlemen uh, will uh, <laughs> will bring you one. <laughs> That's right. If you, if you don't own a Bible, it's our gift to you. If you uh, want to give it away to someone who doesn't own a Bible, give it away. Keep it, give it away. But we are in Luke chapter 4. We're going to read from verses 14 down to verse 21. And then we'll, we'll dive in. I'll, I'll pray, we'll dive in. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. Time and time again, Lord, in... in Luke's gospel. We're just shown that all the Old Testament was hoping for, was pointing towards, was foreshadowing, was promising, is fulfilled in you. That every line of prophecy, every line of expectation, promise, converges in your arrival and what you're going to do for us, Lord. And so today is no different. You are the one who releases captives. You're the one who brings liberty to the oppressed. You're the one who opens the eyes of the blind. You're the one who gives riches an inheritance to the poor. God, I'm praying if we came in here thinking that we were anything other than poor, blind, captive, oppressed, in and of ourselves, that you would open our eyes to these realities. That we would see our desperate state. That we would see how how desperately we need Jesus to walk into this room and say that scripture has been fulfilled for us, for me. 
that my release has been accomplished by your blood. Scott, I don't know where people are at. You do. You know where people are haughty and need to be brought low and you know where people are low and they need to be lifted up. I pray your spirit would come Take these two loaves and multiply it. Feed the people here in a way that I couldn't in and of myself, God. Feed the people with your word. The power of your spirit, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I love this, this time of year. Uh, not so much... The, the winter, so to speak, and, and, and the rain, although I don't mind it, it's great. Uh, what I love is when the hills start to turn green in, in California. Um, I, uh, we, we went away for a couple of days to Monterey and, and as we were driving back, I, you know, to my great delight, I noticed that the hills, you know, because of the few rains we've had, man, it doesn't take much. They're starting to turn green. It's kind of like light hues. They're not fully committed yet, but uh, it's starting. And um, I like the summer, don't get me wrong, but I am not a fan of the brown. Uh, I tried for a while to call the hills golden, right? Have you ever done that? They're golden, man. These hills are golden. You go up running in the hills like I do, and you know they're brown and they're dead. All right? And that, I, I'm not fooling myself. Uh, when I run, I get thorns, you know, caught in my socks and stuff instead of flowers. I, mean, I like, I like the flowers and the green and, and when it just seems like the, the world is as it should be here on the West Coast. Um, this text, uh, essentially, that's what's happening for the people of Israel, for the nations, for the world, really. Uh, hills that have been brown for centuries now. I mean, when you think, especially between the time when the prophets, the last prophets spoke, and then the 400 or so years before, it's just, the hills have just been brown. It was, people are going, where are the promises of God? I mean, where's the hope? Are we just kidding ourselves? I'm not fooling myself here. I look, I know, the hills are brown. Well, in our text, what we see is that the hills are finally, at long last, starting to turn green. That the, the promises of old, the, the plan of old from God are now, now starting to sprout in their day. And this is amazing news for them back, you know, at their time. And it's amazing news for us in this room here and now. Because I, I know personally a lot of us dealing with brown hills in your life. And maybe it's been that way for a while. And I, it's just, just like I prayed, it's my prayer still that, that Jesus would walk into this room, open up, you know, like, it'd be cooler if, if you had a scroll. So unroll the scroll. Read and say, this text has been fulfilled for you guys. This text has been fulfilled for me. Jesus is turning these hills green for us. There's hope for the oppressed, for the poor, for the blind, for the captive, for me and you. Now, 
because we've been out of Luke for a while now, uh, it's important just really quickly to remember where we've been and what we've seen up to this point in Luke's gospel. I am going to fly over this, but it's with a purpose. We saw that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is Luke 1, 35. We see that at his baptism, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's anointed kind of as, as the, the final, the ultimate prophet, priest, king, and as the pioneer of God's new creation. He's doing something new and God's anointing him for this work. We see that he uh, is filled by the Holy Spirit, and then immediately after his uh, baptism, he's led out into the wilderness where he will do kind of head-to-head combat with the devil, standing where Adam fell, you know, uh, uh, basically uh, starting uh, the new humanity. Let's be a second Adam. Let's start a new people, pushing back against the darkness and the fallenness of our flesh. And then, victorious in the wilderness, Jesus now, what we see in verse 14, returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, where he's going to enter in uh, fully now, uh, officially into his public ministry. And he's come to save the world. He's come to save the world. He's been anointed, or he's been, uh, he's, he's been conceived by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, filled, led, empowered by the Spirit, and here he is, walking into this synagogue to preach. Verses um, 14 and 15 of Luke chapter 4 are given kind of as a sort of summary statement. Of, of Jesus' entrance into ministry. Just talking about, hey, he went to these towns, he went to these synagogues, and he ministered. And people were going, no way, who is this? What's happening? There was this kind of stir around him. Verses 16 and following, where we'll spend most of our time this morning, essentially just kind of zoom in on one scene in that public ministry, and, and, and almost kind of as a representation of the whole. So, hey, he's been doing this all over the place in synagogues and things. Let's look at one place where things just went crazy. That's verses 16 through, I think, essentially 30. Now, before we uh, get into this, this, this scene in particular uh, in the synagogue there, there's one observation that I wanted to make that's been personally kind of ministering to me through the week as I've reflected on this. Um, it's not something that immediately stands forth on the text, so let me just, just, just give me a moment. Um, we are told, right, that Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit. From the wilderness, here he comes, and, and it's like he immediately, immediately, it would seem, just starts marching out on, on mission. He's just, he's just going after his mission. He's relentless here. And here's what I thought. Man, if I just beat down the devil, if I just pulled that whole 40-day fast thing, I, I, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm, I, I just got, you know, I've just been in this combat fight, and I won, I'm telling you, I'm going to walk back maybe with a little swagger, but also ready to rest a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sit on, on these, these laurels for a little while, just kind of kick back on the couch, maybe get a good meal, watch a TV show, and relax. And I'm just amazed because it seems that Jesus, Jesus defeats the devil, and he just, he just, 
He just keeps going. He just keeps going. He goes straight for the synagogues and he starts teaching in their synagogues. He goes straight for the people. Now, here's what was ministering to me. Um, Jesus is incredibly others-centered, out-focused, right? So that he, he never stops seeking and wanting to save the lost. And that, brothers and sisters, it occurred to me, is what the Spirit-filled life looks like. Jesus was conceived by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, filled, led, empowered by the Spirit. And what that looked like in his life is, all I'm concerned about is you. There's no self-congratulation, no rest for him just kind of chilling and hanging out. He just makes a beeline from the wilderness for the people he's come for. And that is what the Spirit-filled life looks like. We have all these notions of what the Spirit-filled life is, what it should look like. You know, we have some ideas, whether it's, you know, everywhere you go, you're speaking in tongues, or you kind of have this warm feeling in your heart, or all these things. I thought, let's look for a moment at what the Spirit-filled life looks like in Jesus, and here's what it is. I'm just moving out in love for people. When the Spirit gets a hold of a person, they just want to go, they just want to reach, they just want to be on mission to bring the news of, of, of God's loving, merciful, gracious reign into the lives of other people. That's what the Spirit-filled life looks like. So beware of asking the Spirit to fill you. <laughs> beware, be careful when, when we sing in this church, you know, Holy Spirit, uh, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Because the Spirit might just come and put you on a mission you, you weren't ready for, right? When the Spirit comes, it gives us so much more than a tingly feeling or emotional experience. He gives us a holy calling and an outgoing compulsion. I must go out. I must love. I must move towards a neighbor. That's what it looked like in Christ's life. That's what it will look like in ours. I wonder if you remember this scene in Acts 13.2 when the Holy Spirit, in this prayer meeting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And Barnabas and Saul, goodbye. You're going. Are we ready for that? Are we wanting that? We talk about the Spirit-filled life. Get ready to be sent out to others. Now, um, Jesus comes in the power of this spirit, with this other's focus, mission focus, into the synagogue at Nazareth on the Sabbath day to preach. Um, it's clear from verses 14 to 15, as I've mentioned, that, that Jesus has been doing this in other towns. That we're actually not looking at the very first uh, instance of his ministry. Um, in fact, later on down in verse 23, they mention his ministry or he mentions his ministry in Capernaum. Uh, 
So we know he's been around. And when you cross-reference with other gospel writers, you see the same thing as well. That, that this event we're about to read in Luke, though Luke has filled it out more for us, it actually shows up later in those gospels and in the ministry of Jesus. So my question is, why does Luke bring it to the foreground here? Why does he give it priority of place in his gospel? Because what we see is that this really is the first uh, real instance, real, real, thing, real scene uh, in the gospel of Luke uh, dealing with uh, Jesus' public ministry. He wants us to see this first. And I want to say, why? What do you want me to see in this, Luke? What is here for us that you wanted to bring that forward and fill it out more than any of the other gospel writers? Well, do you remember uh, back in the opening statements Luke made in this gospel when he's talking to Theophilus? He's writing this, this gospel to Theophilus and he says, hey, I, I, I'm setting up an orderly account here. Well, let me tell you how I think that fits in. What Luke is doing in this scene is essentially, uh, he, he's, he's making plain certain key themes that will be developed through the rest of this gospel in Jesus' ministry. So he's wanting us to see from the very outset of Jesus' public ministry certain key things that are going to play into the rest of it. It's an orderly account. He wants us not to miss where he's going. These key themes are going to essentially end up being my headings for the next two weeks. But first, Jesus' identity. He wants us to see who Jesus is. Jesus' identity. Second, Jesus' mission. What did Jesus come to do? Who is he? What did he come to do? Third, Jesus' rejection. And that we'll deal with next time. That's more in verses 22 through 30. But here at the outset of his public ministry is a foreshadow of the end as the people are ready to kill him for announcing the release of captives and the gospel preached to the poor. Let's kill him. That's an interesting way to start your ministry. Identity, mission, rejection. Now, let's start with Jesus' identity, which I see uh, there in verse verse 18, the first part of it. But I want to read starting at verse 16, just to get back in the flow. Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Pause there. That statement is going gonna, is gonna to drop us into, I think, a, a key expression uh, helping us see his identity. But before I, I, I deal with that statement, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, think with me for a moment. I just want to say, one, give one more quick little reflection on, on Bible reading for a second. Bear with me, because I thought this was powerful. If, if ever we needed help seeing um, that Bible reading is worthwhile, that it's valuable, uh, there are a couple things here that I, I, I thought, man, it'd be worth noticing. Because here's what we see. The Son of God himself 
is seen as kind of devoting himself. It was his custom to go to the synagogue and read the scriptures. We're watching the, the, the incarnate word read the inscripturated word. And I thought, man, that is amazing. If ever we needed some sort of evidence, like, I don't know, the Bible just feels kind of cold and stale. Yeah, well, Jesus, the one filled with the Spirit, goes straight to the Bible. And he's reading it. Here's what's even more interesting. Uh, what we see as he's reading the Bible, so he, he reads it, and then he speaks from it. He speaks in light of it. And I thought to myself, interesting, I don't think it's all that different even today, whether we're in a congregation like we are now, or we're, or we're kind of uh, reading our Bibles you know, with coffee in hand in the morning uh, on our own. We read the scriptures of old. And Jesus comes and he addresses us. He speaks to us. I, I, I fear that, um, there are some, and I, I, and I, I worry about the situation where we kind of expect God to speak while our Bibles are closed. Uh, and we have, you know, all the time, in the world for uh, reading the news or watching the TV or uh, stalking on Facebook or uh, whatever it is, surfing the web. And yet we can't seem to open up the Bible. And I get it. It's hard. It's confusing. And I have some tools. Maybe I could help you if, if that's where you're at. But if we don't open up the Bible, we can't be, we shouldn't be confused about the fact that Jesus doesn't seem to be speaking to us. Because what we see here is that, man, brothers and sisters, when we go where he has already spoken, in other words, the Bible, he's ready to speak again. He speaks, he addresses us. So Jesus, what we see here, opens up the scroll of Isaiah. He reads it, he speaks, he ministers. I just encourage you, think about that. See the value in opening up your Bible and let Jesus address you in that way. So, returning then to to the scene uh, uh, in that parenthesis, uh, Jesus opens up the scroll and he reads. The reading is particularly drawn from Isaiah sixty one. Okay, so he opens up this scroll of Isaiah to Isaiah sixty one verses one and two. Essentially, is what he's reading there, uh, and with all eyes fixed on him. He declares this scripture today fulfilled. It's been fulfilled in me, essentially. But here's the question I have. What exactly does this Old Testament text tell us about Jesus? What, what is he fulfilling and, and what do I learn about Jesus from this? When he says it's been fulfilled, you know, roll up that scroll, drop the microphone. This is done right now, today. What does he mean? What do we learn about Jesus from this? The first part of the scripture there in verse 18, that the Spirit is upon him, um, I think points us towards his identity. His identity. Now, 
it is uh, perhaps impossible, especially in this modern day where many of us might not even know Isaiah very well and the book of Isaiah very well. Back then where he was speaking, they knew what he was doing. <laughs> they knew what he was doing. For us, we go, what's going on? It's, it's perhaps impossible for me to do justice to the full flow of prophetic thought and expectation that Jesus is tapping into by reading this text in Isaiah 61. I'm going to do a little bit here, but let me just kind of sum up for you what's happened in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, we're told that, that the apostasy and the, the God kind of dethroning rebellion, the, the, that all the world and the, and, and, and the nations and, and Israel have turned against God, and there's seemingly no hope except for one figure. One lone figure that's kind of put forward as, as, as the one who could maybe, who could turn this thing around. That's kind of the expectation. That's the hope. Isaiah says, it's all, it's all falling apart except for this one who's going to put it all back together and make it better than you could even imagine. And Jesus is tapping in to that flow here. And he's saying, essentially, I'm that one because I'll show you in a moment, but this individual is going to be marked out by the fact that the Spirit of God is upon him. That's how you're going to know, Israel, nations, that, that, that uh, this one has come. The Spirit will be upon him. Now, let me show you Isaiah 59 for a moment. God in Isaiah 59, the whole thing practically is just God grieving. He's just grieving over Israel and their sins and over what he sees there. He goes, man, what in the world happened? These were the people I set apart to be priests unto the nations. And they're just as sinful, if not more so, than everybody else. And this is what he says uh, regarding kind of what he sees. It says in verse um, 15 of Isaiah 59, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice in Israel. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. There's no one. What are we going to do? The world is just spiraling out. But then he goes on. Then his own arm brought him salvation. God's arm is going to bring salvation and his righteousness upheld him. God's righteousness is going to come save the day here. He, God, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. God himself is going to come and make things right. He's looking at Israel saying, there's no one. He says, okay, no one among man is going to do this. I'm coming down to do this. And then we read in verse 20, this is the Redeemer. That a Redeemer will come to Zion. And then we read in verse 21, you'll know the Redeemer's here because the Spirit, my Spirit, will be upon him. God's coming down in this individual and God's Spirit will be upon him. There's no one else who can turn things around. So Isaiah 59, 20 to 21, this individual with the spirit upon him is called the Redeemer. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, this person with the spirit upon him is called the servant. In, in Isaiah 11, 1 through 2, he's shown to be the Messiah. But the spirit is on this one figure and then we get 
to Luke 4 and Jesus says, I am it. We realize that this, that this messianic, uh, redeemer, uh, servant is Jesus himself. The one whom the spirit is upon. He reads Isaiah 61. The spirit of God is upon me. And he says, that's fulfilled today. I'm the one. I'm the one that is going to uh, redeem my people and usher in a new world. Now, uh, Jesus' mission, Jesus' mission, verses kind of the second part of 18 to 21, as we keep uh, reading what he quotes there, um, I want to ask this question. Okay, so Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. Hopefully that's not news for most of us in this room. What has he come to do? What is this, 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 uh, Messiah, servant, redeemer, what has he come to do? What has he been anointed for? Now, the second part of the scripture reading from Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, tells us what Jesus has come to do. Tells us what this servant, uh, what this redeemer has come to do. Let's keep reading along with Jesus in uh, verse 18 down to verse 19. He says this, So the Spirit's upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Did you hear that? Proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That last statement is important. Because what we see is that the background to this text in Luke 4 and also therefore Isaiah 61 is the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. Now this is just going to be real quick. I'm just going to bring you into what, what Jesus is doing here, what the year of Jubilee was. It's given to Israel there, described in uh, Leviticus 25. It's a part of their calendar. God was awesome. He had this way of ordering life so that his people didn't forget uh, who he was, what they meant to him, what they were called to be. I wonder if we have rhythms like that in our life. Hopefully, Sunday, in a sense, is that as we meet on the Lord's Day. But, but you look at how Jesus, or how God orders Israel's time so that they remember Him and that everything is centered around Him and His grace. Well, that's what's happening with the, in Leviticus 25 and this year of Jubilee. The, um, year of Jubilee comes as kind of the last layer uh, in, in these extensions of the Sabbath principle. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the Sabbath? You guys know what the Sabbath even is? You might not, and that's okay. Uh, it comes from the Hebrew word meaning rest. But God had developed this kind of, uh, this kind of, uh, rhythm of rest and Sabbath in Israel. And there are multiple layers to it. Jubilee is the last and final layer of it. Let me, let me show you what's going on here. First, there was the Sabbath day. This was the, the, the seventh day of the week. Okay? So the last day of the week, they were to just rest and remember that God is their creator and God is their redeemer. 
that he's enough. We don't have to keep working. We can stop. We can stop. He's enough for us. That's the first principle or the first layer in, in the Sabbath. Then we see that there was a Sabbath year. This is interesting. This would, this would really upset farmers, but it might actually help their, their farm land because, uh, every seventh year now, the land was, was said, it, it, God said, you need to let it lay fallow. You need to let it rest. Do you trust me? Do you trust that I'm going to provide for you? I'm calling you to trust. The land will do its thing and you will be okay. But give it a rest and trust me. So Sabbath day, Sabbath year. And then here comes this year of Jubilee, this year of the Lord's favor and, and uh, this time of, of liberty, as we'll see. The year of Jubilee brought this principle to its highest expression. It was essentially the Sabbath year of Sabbath years. Meaning, uh, after, after seven Sabbath years, so after 49 years, are you with me on this? Okay, after 49 years, on the 50th year, here's what I want you to do. I want you to consecrate the 50th year. This is Leviticus 25.10. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. This is the year of the Lord's favor. It's the year of liberty. I want you to proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. And he lays out what this liberty means. It means, uh, first, the idea of restoration of property. So if you had kind of fallen on hard times and sold off the property that God initially gave Israel and allotted to them, well, guess what? Uh, it was going to be returning to you. God was going to restore it to you. Or uh, it also meant the remission of debts. Any debts that you owed other people would be forgiven in this 50th year. Debts gone. Same thing with slavery. If you had kind of indentured yourself as a servant in debt, you were a debt slave, you'd be redeemed. You'd be set free. And finally, the rest uh, again was given to the land. The land was allowed to lay fallow. Essentially, if you could boil it down, it was a year of new beginnings. The year of Jubilee took people that were just down and out. Took people that felt like life was over. Like there's no way I'm going to be able to, to crawl out of this hole. I said, wait a minute. You, Yahweh, he's, he's the God who owns the heaven and the earth and he owns you. And he's a God of redemption. He's a God of grace. He's a God of restoration. It's not over for you. It's the year of Jubilee. Slaves come out. Debtors come out. Walk back into the inheritance that I gave you, your land. And just rest and enjoy. Celebrate. That's the kind of community that God creates. It's the kind of redeemed community he was picturing in Israel. And, and so what we see, uh, as we kind of look at what Jesus is doing and as we, as the idea of the year of Jubilee moves into Isaiah 61 and things, we see that this year of Jubilee kind of pointed forward. And even the Jews of, of Jesus' day thought that, that that stuff in, in the year of Jubilee in Isaiah 61, it was pointing forward to the new age. Not just a year, but something new that God was going to do, where like the lion would lay down with the lamb and things would be made right and thorns would stop coming up and, and, and we'd actually start to be able to celebrate with our whole hearts. And 
So something uh, final, something ultimate is coming where justice, righteousness, liberty, love, peace is going to flourish. Shalom will be here. And Jesus looks at um, Isaiah 61. He's unrolling the scroll. He knows where he wants to go. Little town, little synagogue. He reads it and says this. This has been fulfilled today in your hearing. I'm going to do this. And it starts now. The reign of God, the release of captives, the liberty is being proclaimed. The year of Jubilee, the new age is upon you. God has anointed Jesus with the spirit to redeem a people and usher in the new age. That's what he's saying, you guys. Now, he's initiated, this is, this is interesting to me. He, he's initiating a holy revolution here. This is essentially what Jesus is doing. That, that all, all the world up to this point has been filled with, with oppression and injustice, violence and sin and aggression and tyranny. And Jesus is, is, is initiating in this little synagogue a holy revolution. We're going to push back against that. And it starts today. But here's the crazy thing. Uh, if you're attempting to start a revolution, who do you try to enlist for service for your team? Who do you want on your team? If you're going to be pushing against, you know, what's happening in America or whatever, who do you want on your team? Is it not the rich and the famous and the powerful and the wise? You know, you, you, you got to get those good recruits. That's not where Jesus goes at all. But I mean, but think with me here. I, I was thinking about uh, even the political campaigning going on in our day and, and what we see happening, right? You remember the national conventions? I remember seeing this on the, on the online uh, where people were talking about, oh, yeah. Like, look at the celebrities that are supporting the various candidates, you know. And so, uh, supposedly, I guess the celebrities, you know, give um, clout. They give, uh, they, they make your your case seem more compelling. Uh, like, whoa, that person's for Hillary? Oh, wow. Whatever. And so, Hillary had this, like, you know, whole Hollywood entourage, right? And, and, and then, and then, uh, I remember seeing the headline was like, here's all that Trump got, you know, it was like the guy from, the dude from Duck Dynasty, I don't even remember that. Like, uh, he's got a nice beard, but I don't know if people care all that much about his opinions. And uh, I was thinking, you know, look at how different Jesus is. We're, in the world, we're trying to get, if we're starting a revolution, we're trying to get the, the coolest, the hippest, the greatest, the powerful people on our side. Jesus doesn't need any of that. He doesn't need any of that. He calls out the nobodies. He calls out me. I mean, Republican National Convention, they didn't talk to me. I would have been happy to speak. I don't, I don't know if I would have spoken or not. But, no, I probably wouldn't have. But you, you, nobody, they don't want me. I'm a nobody. Well, guess what? Jesus comes into this room and says, hey, you want on the team? Because those are the people I put on the stage. He starts talking about the poor. 
I've come to preach the good news to the poor. He starts talking about the captive, the blind, the oppressed. These are the lowest. These are the least. These are the have-nots and the can-nots. And those are the people that Jesus has come for. And he's starting this, this holy revolution, this new humanity, developing it around himself with these kinds of people, you guys. I mean, that's good news for those of you that feel like you're just nobody. For those of you who think you're cool, God might have to work on that. But for most of us, we're going, man, that is great news. I feel poor. I feel captive. I feel like I can't get up in the morning. I feel lost. Jesus says, your jubilee is for people like you. Now, this begs the question, um, as we look carefully at, at at this this quote in Isaiah 61 and and here in Luke's gospel, uh, are these categories physical or spiritual? Poor, captive, oppressed, blind. Are these physical categories or spiritual? If you don't know where I'm going with this, hopefully you will in just a moment. We live in Silicon Valley. By the world's standards, I, I would say we are certainly not poor. Right? Physically. And so here's my question. Does that rule us out? Are we kind of out from the beginning? Like, well, shoot. Maybe the good news isn't for us because I'm not physically poor. You know, we like how uh, the Beatitudes and things are, are captured in uh, Matthew's gospel where, where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We go, oh, okay. Okay, we're all right. But Luke doesn't do that here. And even later, when uh, Jesus kind of gives a similar sermon to the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't say poor in spirit, just says poor. Does that mean we're done here if we're not physically poor? Are there economical, political, physiological, social standards required for entrance into the kingdom of God? Are these categories physical or spiritual? The answer, hopefully you know, of course, is yes. Meaning both. Both and. It's not an either or. It's a both. And on the one hand, we must not say that Jesus is only concerned with the physical. We know that's not true. That's why he's doing war with the devil <laughs> in the wilderness. He's not, he's not making war on Rome or Caesar. He's making war on the devil. And he's come to release us. From the devil's grip and oppression. And he's come to release us from the debts we owe to God for our sins. So we know he's come for spiritual. We dare not say it's just physical here. Some people have whole theologies of spawned off of this text. Uh, making the case for that. But, on the other hand, we don't want to overreact and say that Jesus has no regard here for the physical at all. As if, hey, we just kind of spiritualize it all the way. He's not talking about poor physically. He's not talking about the blind. He's not talking about the oppressed by actual political people or in social environments. He's just talking about spiritual like demons and sin and stuff. And I don't think that's fair to his mission either. Because he's, he shows a radical concern for bodies and physical things throughout the gospel. In fact, as you just drop down a few verses there in 38 through 40 of Luke 4, I mean, what do you see? He's just healing bodies. Everyone who's brought to him, healing bodies. He's concerned for physical and spiritual 
realities here. So the new age of Jesus' jubilee and this year of release, this year of new beginning, is finally going to touch actually all of creation, right? Both soul and body. Both the religious and the economical, social, political. He's going to be our king and we are going to live in peace under him. And we're also going to live in God's presence. We have regenerated souls, but we'll be given resurrected bodies. His concern is for both sides of that coin. He's going to redeem it all. He's going to, he's going to promote a new beginning for it all. In time. Which is what we'll see next, next week. But what we see, um, I think then, is that Jesus is, is not only willing to help the physically desperate. He, he is willing to help the spiritually desperate. But I do think what we have here, at least, is, is an implication um, that the physically desperate are often the most willing to receive help from Jesus. Do you hear me on that? It's often the physically desperate... I think we can get this from where Luke's going here, that it is often the physically desperate that are ready to receive help from Christ, both physically and spiritually. It opens them up. Physical need opens us up to spiritual need, does it not? That's how I got saved, you guys. He, he made my physical world go wrong, and my, my heart was opened up to him. Man, I need your help. Help me on all levels, please. So it opens us up. Take the uh, poor, for example. It's the physically poor who often recognize their spiritual poverty. Is it not true? So there's that verse in Luke 18.25, famous, because people like us struggle with it, uh, because we're in a wealthy area. Jesus says, if it's easier, or he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What does he mean there? Does he mean that wealth, he has a problem with money? No. He doesn't have a problem with money. He's saying that, there, that the problem with money arises in the hearts of man, where we let money blind us. And when we have lots of it, we don't think we need God's help. We have this illusion of self-sufficiency. We think like, why? Like, okay, think about the year of Jubilee. Who, who wants the year of Jubilee the most? It's the poor. It's the guy who's got nothing. It's the guy who's at the end of the line. Just like, what am I going to do? My bank account's in the red. It's over for me. They hear the year of release has come, and they go, no way, I'm on that. Think about the rich now. Think about the guy who's been accumulating all this stuff through the years, and he's got all this extra land, and all these slaves, and all this. And then the year of release comes. How does he feel about it? Well, that's, that's lame. How can, how can I get ahead? But I worked hard! You know, whatever. The, 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 you see how, how the, the, the physically poor are more inclined to be open to this, this, this need for God and His, His, His intervention. And, and the physically rich have this self-illusion so many times. Hey, I, hey, I, I'm alright. I don't need God's help. Life is great the way it is. Thank you very much. That's why when Jesus comes, and he does, see, he, pre- he cares about the, the physically rich and, and the physically poor. He preaches the gospel to both. 
But we watch this play out with the rich young ruler, do we not? Listen, man, sell what you have and follow me. I'm worth more than all of that. The rich young ruler goes away sad because he had many possessions. I can't do it. I don't want to part with all my stuff. Gospel goes forward, he doesn't see his need. But then we get to James, in James 2, 5, and what do we read? It says that the poor in this world, God has chosen to be rich in faith. They have nothing else to hold on to. I'm going to grab a hold of Jesus because i got nothing else. So, contrary to what the world says, it's the poor who have the upper hand in the spiritual dimension. And when these trials come at us, God gets our attention because he loves us. This physical stuff that's so hard and we don't always understand. Romans 5 and other places says, listen, it's to, it's to get you looking to him. To deepen your dependence on him. To increase your hope in him. Because physical stuff opens you up to spiritual and he's going to redeem it all. In the end, he's gonna, he's gonna provide release, redemption, renewal for it all in the end. So though Luke uses only physical categories here, he most certainly has both physical and spiritual, uh, realities in view. Let me ask you, we're gonna start drawing things to a close. Where are you in all of this? Um, where are you at? In this whole scene in Luke 4. Like are you the poor? Are you are you the captive? Are you the blind? Are you the oppressed? Do, do, do you feel uh, un- unable to crawl out of this hole that you're in? You feel desperate for help to come in from outside. Are you just going, I, I'm on the ground, man. I got nothing. Has that been the story of your life? Are your hills brown? Because I mean, I, I, if that's the case, I want you to hear what Jesus declared in that synagogue 2,000 years ago. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. When he gives his spirit to his people, what he's come to do is lift us up. And he's come for people like us. And he's not given the full package now. And that's what's hard. And we'll see that more next week. Because he does move more in the spiritual realm now. Where even in the midst of physical trials, we feel full. We can feel, we can feel okay. He can satisfy us because we know what's coming. But I wonder if you're there, because those are the kind of people Jesus is coming for. With the uh, anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, actually it's Halloween Day. Some people call it Reformation Day. Uh, the Protestant Reformation took place on Halloween Day, essentially. It was initiated then, uh, however many years ago. Well, I thought it'd be cool to just quote Martin Luther here for a moment. Something that he had said kind of in response to the legalism he saw in his day. He, he was speaking into a culture that thought they had to earn their way with God. They thought they could, like, get on God's good side, get his favor. And Martin Luther says this, it's amazing. God receives, hear this, God receives none but those who are forsaken. Restores health to none but those who are sick. Gives sight to none but the blind. And life to none but the dead. He does not give saintliness to any but sinners. Nor wisdom to any but fools. He has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in 
disgrace. I think I put that on your handout because I wanted you to read it again and again. What it essentially says is so long as we think that we have to give something, that we play a part in this equation, that, 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 that we need to kind of bring something God, to God, that we have something to bring to God, He can give us nothing. But the moment that we realize, I got nothing in this exchange. I got nothing but wretchedness, but blindness, but foolishness, but captivity, but oppression. I got nothing to give here. He can give us everything. Those are the only people that God comes in and, 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 and releases. So long as we think we're kind of working with him in this for our salvation, it's not going to happen. So he takes us to the place of poverty. He takes us to the place of the, the prison. He takes us to the lowest places so he can lift us up, you guys. And you might be there. And it might not feel like mercy. But I mean, what did, what did, what did Jesus say to Paul? And Paul's like, I've got a thorn in the flesh. I want it to go. The physical stuff hurts. I want it to go. What does Jesus say? My power is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Don't despise these moments, even though they're hard. I'm giving you strength. I'm enough. Open your heart to me and let's do, do this thing. The Jubilee is for people like you. Now, here's where I want to close. I'm going to ask one final question. How will Jesus accomplish this? How's Jesus going to accomplish this? How is he? He's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, this, this, this new age of the Jubilee. He's talking about riches for the poor, liberation for the captive and oppressed, and sight to the blind. How is he going to accomplish this, you guys? He's going to accomplish it in a way that no one in that synagogue ever would have expected. And I, I, I love, I love just preaching the gospel. That's where we're going here. Just hear his love for you guys as we close. He's going to bring this to the poor and the blind and the oppressed by taking on our poverty, our blindness, our oppression, our captivity. That's, and, and, and defeating it. That's how he's ultimately able to, to uh, proclaim this year of the Lord's favor and this release for us, this liberty for you and for me. He, on the cross, becomes poor. You remember that text in 2 Corinthians 8, 9? He becomes poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. I mean, he's stripped of not only his dignity, but even his clothes. He has nothing on the cross. There's the poor. There's the poor. Or, he was captive. He was led captive like a sheep led to the slaughter. You read in Isaiah 53 and other places. That from Gethsemane to Calvary, they just kind of march him forward like a lamb in chains. He's going to become, he's going to take the captivity or the blindness you remember that scene where they blindfold him and they're just mocking him. They're just mo- and they strike him over the face. They say, "Prophesy, prophesy if you're the savior who struck you." He's going to take our blindness. It's going to go dark for him around the cross and the oppression. You don't need me to to tell you that he was oppressed. 
that men had gathered around him and were just howling around the cross and crucified, killed him. And all of this was not just physical, but spiritual. As the wrath of God is poured out against the Son of Man for our sins. You understand? That is how, and Jesus knows it's coming, his rejection is coming. That's how he can, st- he can sit down in the synagogue after reading the scriptures and say, today it's fulfilled. Because he knows what he's come to do. He knows where he's headed. In his crucifixion, he would take all of our debts so that in his resurrection, he could proclaim the full accomplishment of our release. You and I are free from our sins. You and I are free from the oppression of the devil. You and I are headed to nothing but glory in but a few years. Hang on. Hang on. Amen. The hills are turning green. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the release that you offer. Nobody's like us. We get all the grace. You get all the glory. We provide nothing to this salvation of ours. We just receive it. Light shines in to the dungeons. Chains fall off. And we're free. I pray that you would do that in this room here and now for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.